Welcome back, everyone, to Tales of the Talmud. Uh, I'm Rabbi Nick Renner, and it's great to be joining you all to be learning some of this wonderful agatha, this material, these stories of our rabbis and their wanderings, their meanderings, their lives, their arc and trajectory. It's great unpacking all of this with you. So I love to start these conversations off with a brief uh, conversation, a brief opportunity to ask uh, what this is all about. Where are we? What is the Talmud? I know some folks have come to this more times than others, but I love to take a moment just to discuss what we're looking at here. Um, does anybody feel like they have heard this preamble enough that they want to give me a detail on what the Talmud's about? A little piece of it? All right, let me take it then. I'll take it from here. The Talmud is essentially... The formation of, uh, it represents and reflects the formation of rabbinic Judaism, of Judaism as we have it today. It is the first sort of post-biblical set of Jewish writings and texts, and it reflects all of the changes that take place between the transition from Israelite peoplehood and worship and connection with the great temples, the cultic sacrificial system, the priesthood, and all of those pieces to Judaism as we have it, with rabbis, with synagogues, um, a Judaism that is dispersed throughout the Mediterranean basin, the ancient Near East, and then later Europe. Uh, it is sort of the beginnings of all of these pieces that make Judaism what it is today. So the Talmud, there are actually, get ready, two Talmuds. There is a Talmud that is the Palestinian Talmud, the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem, and the Babylonian Talmud, the Bavli. Uh, this is because the communities that were writing all of this, having these conversations at the time, were doing so in the land of Israel and then in Babylonia, where they had been forced into exile by the Babylonians uh, following the destruction of the first temple. But the Babylonians were then conquered by the Persians, who allowed the Jews to go back, build the second temple, but a lot of them stayed. And so a lot of this discourse back and forth, these two Talmuds that emerge, reflects the two communities, reflects some of their differences. They had scholars going back and forth, though, so it's often the same characters. The stories are similar. The legal material is similar as well. In terms of timing uh, and in terms of what this is, the Talmud itself is actually two written works put together. First, it's the Mishnah. The Mishnah is the very beginning of all of this rabbinic writing. Uh, it's a lot shorter. It's generally in Hebrew. The Mishnah is followed by the Gemara. The Gemara gets more into Aramaic. It becomes a whole piece about unpacking the Mishnah in turn. Uh, the Mishnah was redacted in the year 220. So that's the very beginning of this stuff, is 220 CE. And then the Gemara... It's not entirely clear when it was redacted. There is sort of a final layer to it, a final narrative editorial layer that we know about. We call the stum, but we don't know when that last layer was put in place. Probably sometime 600, 700 or so, but it's not entirely, entirely clear. Um, another piece about the Talmuds, uh, I mentioned there is this Babylonian Talmud, the Bavli, and the other Talmud, the uh, Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem. The one we usually use when we're looking at stories, when most people are studying Talmud, is the Bavli. It's much more accessible. Um, the language, the Hebrew itself, is much closer to, I mean, I say accessible, and then we're going to get into these texts that are somewhat <laughs> bonkers a little bit, but that's all right. It's still a little bit more accessible than the Yerushalmi. Um, 
In part, this is because it has gotten much more heavily edited over the years. So if you were a scholar of this sort of material and you wanted to get closer to the original text, you might be interested in looking at what the Yerushalmi says. However, most people, and I say scholar, I mean like a Talmudist, like a PhD, that kind of graduate level student in it. That said, if you were a classical rabbi trying to look at what is the meaning of this stuff and derive Jewish law and principle from it, uh, you would probably look at the Bavli. Most of what we're looking at is the Bavli. A couple of other notes. The Talmud also happens to be the longest written work in the ancient world by about four times. The next closest thing is some Roman piece of legal codes and such. Part of what makes it so long is that, first of all, it's a couple of different genres, but within all of the legal material, they preserve all of the dissenting opinions. They say Rabbi X wanted it this way, Rabbi Y wanted it this way, here's the way we do it. Um, but it talks about all of their different opinions. It very much preserves not just the answers, but the discussion, the argument. It preserves the whole path by which they got there, which is really a pretty remarkable thing, and it really gives you insight into their mindset, uh, the folks who were part of these discussions. If you've ever heard it called the Oral Torah, there's a reason for that. Originally, it was a set of conversations. It was these guys, and I say guys, there, is, there are women occasionally in the Talmud, there's only about one that I know of by name. There are a couple of others, but it is very much a male document. It also represents and reflects the elites of the community, this rabbinic discourse. Um, but they were originally having a conversation. They were gathered in their Beit Midrash, or study hall, talking all of this stuff out, hashing it all out, arguing with each other. It was a very lively thing, and it didn't get written down until a little bit later. Sometimes we see this text and it very much reflects the fact that it was a conversation, not a carefully thought out and mapped out uh, written treatise. In terms of content, the Talmud is two genres. It's legal material, as I mentioned. It's prescriptive. It talks about what the rules and the laws are. It's the very first um, work that is putting together what we would think of today as halakha, or Jewish law. Um, and even though it is the beginnings of halakha, Contemporary halakha and legal material is often different than what is in the Talmud. Um, kashrut is one example. Keeping kosher, the laws in the Talmud are very different, actually, than the laws we have today. Um, in the Talmud, they didn't have separate kitchens or separate sets of dishes. Um, so these things... Yeah, they weren't tangling with dishwashers or Pyrex, for that matter, Bert. Um, it's true. So... A piece of it there, it is part of this ongoing legal process, and if you get a contemporary volume of Talmud, there are 63 of them, uh, you can oftentimes see in the margins where the law is actually different. They'll have a little note in there saying, this is what the Talmud says about this law right now. What we do today is actually different. So it preserves a lot of that too. You can actually see it, see the trajectory of the evolution of Jewish law. But we're not doing law here, not in this group. If somebody's interested in Talmudic law, perhaps that's a conversation for another time. But what we're looking at here are the stories. Um, that's the other big genre besides legal material are the stories. Um, the midrash, these rabbinic stories that help fill in the gaps of their concepts of what happened in the Torah, filling in those pieces, and also the stories of the rabbis themselves. The agadita, which is this um, Aramaic-derived word, uh, it's the same as the word Haggadah. It has to do with a legend. Um, and so we're looking at these legends, these stories, these mystical wanderings and arguments and circumstances of the ancient rabbis of antiquity. Wow, that's a whole lot right there. <laughs> questions about what is the Talmud? I have two quick questions. One is in English. Sure. 
When you use the word redacted, you mean told or retold. I mean canonized, essentially. I mean solidified, yeah, into its... My, is that that's where things are, are redacted from the test? White it out. Yeah. Scholarship, that's a good question. So scholarship uses the word redacted to talk about when it sort of is canonized in its form that we have it today. Um, I don't know why the conversation about Talmud is a conversation about redaction, whereas biblic- the conversation of the Bible, for instance, Hebrew Bible, we talk about its canonization and what is part of the canon. Um, that's an interesting English language question. I may look into that for next time. But I use that word redacted less um, as in the CIA redacted this information out of it uh, to keep it secret, but redacted as in it was finalized. The final editorial layering um, was marked at X point. So and is there only one text? Like of the, Babylon, of the Babylonian Talmud, mm-hmm. is there like one agreed to text? Like there's one text of yeah. Rashid? Yeah, the Babylonian Talmud is pretty much set in place. Um, same thing with the Yerushalmi. Um, they are pretty well established. So, um, hang on, Georgia, one more, and then, yeah, well, and then Jill. One is, I have heard, and yeah. this is a question for that there are more, more Talmuds in South Korea than in any other country because they use it for the arguments, what you said about the, uh, which, uh, clearly reading the last, uh, the first chapter of this, I had no idea why the South Koreans used it, but on the concept of hearing the different arguments of the mm-hmm. rabbis makes some sense, but I don't know if that's true. I heard it someplace. So I read an article, what was it, in maybe the New Yorker or something like that recently, it was a few months ago, talking about uh, how the Talmud has emerged in South Korea, among other places in Asia, I think in Japan and perhaps parts of China as well, as this gold standard for teaching um, logic and rhetoric and the trajectory of an argument, for instance. And so they're not teaching Agatha, the stories and stuff that we're learning. They're very much taking some legal dispute and walking students through all of the different agreements and disagreements and what have you. Um, Aren't there specific rules of Talmudic discourse? discourse? There are specific rules and there are specific uh, conventions in the way in which they do it. One thing we'll see even with this, this is uh, this is true both in the Agadita as well as the Halakha, as well as the law. They look for lines of Torah or lines of Tanakh, lines of Hebrew Bible, to pin what they're talking about. On. They use that to support their arguments, even if the context is different. We looked at a, uh, a story at the beginning of this series, Tales of the Talmud, where they were talking about, um, this is the story of the snake oven, if anyone remembers this, and lo bashamayim he. They take this line out of context in Deuteronomy to say that, ah, actually we have authority rather than God having authority to determine these legal matters. If you look in Deuteronomy, it's actually saying something very different. But that's one of these conventions that they use to help assemble and create their arguments. So yes, this, um, to return to your question there, I have read pieces about Talmud in South Korea, um, and in East Asia. In fact, I'll make a note of this and maybe I'll bring in one of those to share a little bit, you know, for next time. We can hear a little bit about some of the contemporary pedagogic use of Talmud. Way outside of Judaism. Um, was it? Did you hear? Was it translated into Korean? 
it, well, what I had heard, the, the question, the trick question is, in what country uh, is there more Talmuds per capita than in any other country? And the answer was South Korea. But, <laughs> For how weird is that? Um, Jill, did you have a question? Forget it. It's not, it's nothing. At least it's not you I sure? All right. I know we have at least one attorney here. Yeah. <laughs> is, is the, when you talk about the different opinions. Yeah. Is that similar to like a dissenting? We're talking about Supreme Court all the time mm -hmm. about a dissenting opinion. Is that is it the same thing? Well, you can have not just dissenting opinions; you can have concurring opinions mm -hmm. where on any given uh, issue, and you have multiple justices, they can come to a decision. But their reasoning is different. So it's the, it's not just dissent, but even on the majority that can be concurring, but the reasoning is different. Mm -hmm. So. Yes. I guess my question is, does, I guess, I don't we know. We have that too. That's English law as well, but does the tradition of having all the opinions there, does that come from the Talmud? The tradition in it, American? Well, in American law. I'm just wondering in if. In American it, law, no. It comes from English law? Or? It comes from English law. I'm not sufficiently... Uh, a, yeah, go it ahead. Comes, it comes basically from the common law, except in the state of Louisiana. <laughs> now you know. Which, which has their derivation from French. Uh -huh. That makes sense. I would say I'm not sufficiently a scholar of the history of law to be able to answer that, but I appreciate, Bob, you're putting forth that uh, this tradition of uh, retaining the assenting and dissenting um, views is uh, derived from English law rather than from halakha here. Interesting, though. It's an interesting question. Other questions about what this material is that we're cracking open to look at here? All right. So without any further ado, we're going to get back into this story of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that we began last time. I added part one to this as well. I'm going to just run us through it very quickly. Um, I think a lot of you were here and part of that conversation too. Uh, like I said, I'm just going to run us through that very quickly as this recap, but we'll break into our traditional Chavruta study, which is the traditional mode of Talmud study, studying with somebody else uh, for part two here. So if you've got uh, part one here, we'll just launch into this. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai were sitting together, and Yehuda ben Gabriel was sitting near them. Three rabbis, this other guy sitting near them. Rabbi Yehuda started by saying, How beautiful are the works of this people, talking about the Romans. They have built streets, they have built bridges, and they have built baths. Rabbi Yossi was silent. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai answered and said, All that they made was just for them. They built markets for prostitutes, they built baths to rejuvenate themselves, and bridges to levy tolls. At this, Yehuda ben Gavrim went and spoke of their conversation, which reached the government, the Roman administration of the time. They decreed, Yehuda, who praised us, shall be praised. Yossi, he was silent. He shall be exiled to Tsipori. And Shimon, who spoke ill, shall be executed. This is setting the stage here. So Shimon uh, has this <laughs> decree set out for him. If you have any pressing questions, you can stop me, but I just want to run us through this to get to part two. 
Rabbi Shimon and his son fled and hid in the Beit Hamidrash. So he and his son fled and hid in the study hall. His wife brought him bread and a jug of water, and they ate. But when the decree became even more severe, he said to his son, Women are of weak resolve. She may be tortured and expose us. So they went and hid in a cave. A miracle occurred in this cave, and a carob tree and water well were created for them. They would strip their clothing and sit up to their necks in sand. The whole day they studied, and when it came time for their prayers, they got dressed, prayed, and then undressed so they wouldn't wear out the clothing. In this way, they dwelled in the cave for 12 years. So this is what we have here. He has this little, this nasty little bit about his wife that's not particularly charitable about women being of weak resolve. So then he and his son go and hide anonymously in this cave. Um, and they sit, you can sort of imagine these two disembodied talking heads talking about Jewish law and all of this Torah. Um, they would get out to pray and then they go bury themselves and they lived like that for 12 years. And he left his wife. And he left his wife and his family for that. Um, it is, well, we'll come back to some of the Did themes of this. Something? That's a good question. Um, his son, Rabbi Eliezer ben Shimon, uh, is sort of his notable disciple who becomes a rabbi, but uh, we don't hear of lots of other children of his. One day, Elijah came and stood at the entrance of the cave and exclaimed, Who will inform Bar Yochai that the emperor is dead and his decree is annulled? So they emerged. Seeing a, pl- a man plowing and sowing his field, they exclaimed, They abandon eternal life in favor of temporal life. Wherever they cast their gaze was instantly incinerated. All right. So the two of them have been in this cave for a long time. Then the emperor dies. And Elijah, Elijah the prophet, Eliyahu Hanavi, the same one who visits our Passover seders, who starts out in Hebrew Bible and then emerges to be this mystical figure in Talmud, mediating between God and the rabbis, um, who is long, long dead. He was in, like I said, in Hebrew Bible. He did not live concurrently, but he ascends to heaven in a fiery chariot and then seems to return in these mystical, interesting ways. If you're interested in hearing more about it, my mentor and rabbi from my upbringing came to KI and taught a whole session about Eliyahu Hanavi. You can find it um, on our KI Tunes podcast section. In any event, Eliyahu Anavi comes and says, somebody should, you know, let them know that the emperor's dead. They come out and they see somebody engaged with the work of plowing their field, not studying Torah. And they are so judgmental in their piety that uh, they become incensed by it. And wherever they look catches on fire. They come out of this cave, this um, idyllic, lovely little place of just studying and perfectly learning Torah at all times to the real world, and they're so maladjusted from the experience, they set the world on fire. At this, a bat kol spoke out and cried. A bat kol literally means the daughter of a voice. It is what the Talmud uses as a stand-in for the voice of God. In Torah, we have... Um, I don't know... And God spoke to Moses, saying... Uh, God speaks directly. In this, it's a layer removed. We get this sort of echo. We get this daughter of a voice. This voice of God doesn't have the same role that it does in Torah. It's a thing of subtlety. It's, it's different. So at this, a botkol spoke out and cried, Have you come out to destroy my world? Go back to your cave. So they returned and lived there 12 months, saying the punishment of the wicked in Gehinom, this sort of purgatory, the very ancient, very first understandings of what might be a Jewish conception of hell. The punishment of the wicked in Gehinom is limited to 12 months. 
After this, a botkol spoke out and said, Go forth from your cave. So they go back in the cave. They seem to have been rehabilitated, and they come out. At this, they came out. Wherever, wherever Rabbi Eliezer wounded, Rabbi Shimon healed. So the two of them seem to have this working relationship after they've been come out of their cave rehab, that Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Eliezer, his son, might do damage, but Rabbi Shimon would actually help to heal, to help in the world. Rabbi Shimon said to him, you, my, my son, you and I are acceptable for this world. Whatever happened when they went back in the cave seems to have altered them to some degree. On the eve of Shabbat before sunset, they saw a man holding two bundles of myrtle and running at twilight. They asked him, what are these for? He replied, they are in honor of Shabbat. They responded, well, shouldn't one suffice? Why do you need two of these bundles for Shabbat? Why, why not just one? He said, one is for remember, one is for keep. Shamor v'zachor, as we have from our prayers uh, on Friday night. It also comes from Exodus and Deuteronomy. These are the two things you're supposed to do with Shabbat. It actually, we spell it out in that Lacha Dodi prayer every Friday night. But here we have it written out formally. What you're supposed to do with Shabbat is keep it and remember it. And so this guy says, this is why we have two, for keep and remember. This is how you hold Shabbat. So at this, Rabbi Shimon turned to his son and said, ah, Look at how precious the commandments are to Israel. At this, his mind was eased. All right, any burning questions, no pun intended, before we move on to part two of what happens with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. It's a very strange story of extreme piety. Um, go ahead. I just want to say, yeah. so much clearer when you read it than <laughs> Like, And the first time we read it, it's so confusing. Then... Right? But now it's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. It's so, so interesting. So two things I would suggest. One, I would make the argument that Talmud contains essentially the hardest texts that we have in Judaism. Um, perhaps not the most esoteric and strange. I mean, reading Zohar and Kabbalah is a very um, psychedelic, out-of-body experience. But these texts, following the narrative and the reasoning and what's going on and sort of getting inside their mindset... Um, is really hard. Not for nothing. It's really challenging. Um, these stories are stories that I began learning with my Rav when I was in high school, Rabbi Steve Sager. So I've been learning this stuff for 15 to 20 years at this point. Um, some of these same stories. Uh, I bring them to this group because they are layered and multifaceted and complicated enough that I wind up learning each time I learn these stories with a group like this. Um, this is how rich so much of this is. So yes, it is way difficult, and that's part of the adventure. That's part of the journey with Talmud. Is It's a struggle. It's hard. Um, and it's supposed to be hard. That comes with it. So um, I am here to help. I'm here to help be the tour guide and be the study companion, the Chavruta, to all of you. Um, and this is a place where I invite you to feel the challenge of it, to feel how difficult it is in its meaning and its reasoning. And frankly, we are reading the stories and diving into the mindset of people who lived over 1,500 years ago. But I don't so, think we've ever, I don't think you've ever reread it like, the next time right. and refreshed our memories because there was not a part two kind of thing. I did it once, and that was the very first session. Um, with oh, the oven yeah, of Achnai. Oh, um, this yeah. is the only other time I've done a two-part one. Oftentimes I have focused on a character and brought a bunch of stories from different places to look at one character. This one I thought, you know what, let's actually look at this one long story of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. 
um, across two sessions. So that's a piece of why I sort of did that turbo recap. Yeah, Susan. There just seems to be an ambiguity of the rabbis toward extreme pious. Yes. Like, they respect it, but man, they don't like There is this real, I might use the word ambivalence. And not in the sense of that they're disinterested, but ambivalence, multiple valences, that they feel very mixed about this kind of piety. On one hand, there is this rabbinic fantasy of abandoning the material, uh, corporeal life in favor of some perfect study, just existing in the study hall and reading and learning all the time. And, um, and there are other rabbis that say, you can't do that. You can't abandon your family and your wife and your children and your health just to live in this fantasy. So they've got this very ambivalent sort of relationship with study, with learning, with what is their perfect piety. Um, I've heard it suggested in learning these texts that you can sort of see this very proto-Haredi impulse. If you look at Haredim, the sort of ultra-Orthodox Judaism of today, um, you can sort of see some of that impulse in this kind of uh, hyper-intense piety, this sort of closing off of much of the world in favor of a purity of study, of, of Torah, of intellect in that way, which is both seductive and dangerous, I would suggest, in its own way. Um, Seems like the Talmud likes to point out the danger. The Talmud is not comfortable with this. The Talmud lives with the tension of it. Um, the Talmud, part of what I love about it, it is very much a document that lives with the gray areas. It doesn't uh, deal with the world in black and white very much. It deals with complex and flawed characters. I remember learning Rabbi Akiva with this group where we looked at both the brilliance of his expounding and exposition on Torah and also that he was a dangerous character that took part in a messianic military revolt um, and got a lot of people killed in the course of his messianism. So he's both brilliant and beloved and dangerous. That the Talmud is willing to sit with the complexity of that and be fully present for what that means. That we don't write him off uh, because of that because he's dangerous, but we also understand that the brilliance of his Torah doesn't uh, flatten out the challenging parts. Other, yeah. used to say that in many little towns in Poland, the men will be studying Torah and the wife will have the business uh. to support the family. So, and so uh, that was uh, not uh, many years ago. So you're that was the life that was expected. So then the woman isn't... If you marry, if you were so lucky Mm -hmm. to marry a uh, a studious young man, then you would have to hold the business to support the family. And you were lucky enough to work. Right. And we see this in Israel today with Haredim who do not work and do not have jobs and live on government handouts. And oftentimes their women are begging at Jewish holy sites, whereas they are in Torah study and sort of an enactment of this kind of uh, fantasy, I would suggest. Right. Right. We are not the only culture that does that. I want to say a word about the sort of role of Talmud in a sociological sense. For a lot of Jews who are European and come out of Europe and Eastern Europe, the Talmud is sort of seen as this thing that you go to and you read day in and day out and you can really occupy yourself with it. It was not always like that for all Jewish people. For a lot of 
what were Sephardi and Mizrahi Jews, the Jews who lived in and around the Muslim world, the Talmud was a manual. You'd go to it to get the answers, but it wasn't considered virtuous to sit and read it day in and day out all the time. I would say, yeah. My husband said mm-hmm. that because in Italy it was not yeah. like that. In Italy it was the men that worked. Right. In the Mediterranean, a lot of the legacy was uh, different. They had jobs mm-hmm. where they could close on Saturday. Yes. And they might learn Talmud on Saturday or learn text, but yeah. people worked in a, in a different way. The reason for that was in the Middle Ages, when all of these groups, these different diasporic Jewish communities were exploring Talmud, um, Judaism and Islam, under Islam, looked very different than Judaism in Europe. Judaism, in looking at Europe and looking at the broader situation of it, it was far more politically decentralized and unstable. There were all of these little local bishops and princes and fiefdoms, and they were all warring with each other and constantly in this state of conflict. And in the middle of that, the Jews essentially, because they couldn't take part in what was going on in the broader society, because the broader society, look, they didn't call it the Dark Ages for nothing, um, was not something that they would have aspired to. And so they turned inward. They turned to Jewish texts and the last, the preceding centuries of Jewish innovation and scholarship. They really turned inward. This is in contrast to Judaism in the Muslim world at the same time, where there was a far greater degree of political stability, of social stability. And a lot of these societies, particularly in and around Muslim Spain, they were far more tolerant and accepting of Jews. So rather than turn inward toward the Talmud, Jews turned outward and were writing poetry, were taking part in learning and studying physics and mathematics and medicine. Um, there is a remarkable figure I'd love to teach about sometime named Shmuel Hanagid, who saw himself as a contemporary King David back in Muslim Spain in the 1400s. So he wrote poetry like David would have done in the book of Psalms, and he was a military commander. This is a Jewish guy who led Muslim armies. Just to tell you, this is a totally different society at that time. So because of that, Talmud study wasn't seen as this virtuous thing that you're supposed to engage in day in and day out. It was seen as, okay, this is a place where we can turn for answers and we can turn for study, but it didn't have the same virtue attached to just reading it that we get from uh, Ashkenazi Orthodox Judaism. So that's a word on why the Talmud sort of exists in Jewish peoplehood in the ways it does. Bert, did you have a question? Yeah, this is, this says it's from the uh, Tractate Shabbat. Yes. Two questions. Yes. Can you tell us something about the Tractate as a whole and what does this have to do with Shabbat? The other thing, we just saw one sentence about it. So there are 63 tractates in the Talmud, the relationship between the name of the tractate or its theoretical concept, and what actually comes up in the discussion is sometimes tenuous. Uh, And this, I think, reflects the orality, the oral nature of the text, that these guys are gathered around there having a conversation, and it meanders in all these directions. Um, one of my favorite examples of this is the story of Rava Barbarkana. Um, this bizarre, probably the strangest set of stories in the Talmud of this guy who goes on this mystical voyage. It kind of sounds Odyssean almost, and encounters sea monsters and demons and traitors and all kinds of stuff. They get to that story in this whole section about laws for boats. Regulations for boats, how they should be built, what their dimensions are and whatnot. And so they're talking about all these laws about boats, and then they say, oh, and here's a story about a guy who went on a boat one time, and they're off and running. Uh, that's their oral conversation they have about it. So I would 
uh, invite you to sit with some of that ambiguity and some of the fact that it is a little loose. Okay, so we're in Masachet Shabbat, Tractate Shabbat. And here we're going to talk about this guy who came out of the cave and set the world on fire. Um, it's the way in which they have this conversation. So this is, I mean, the whole thing is not a story and doesn't no. together. It's more like an anthology. Yeah, it's a collection and they move from, I mean, the way it's structured is the way in which the Mishnah takes apart these topics, but then they meander in all kinds of directions from stories to legends to arguments to laws. They go in all sorts of directions. So, um, I invite our rational minds to try and hold this with a little bit of peace. Um, any other questions before we launch into part two? We've seen Rabbi Shimon and his son dealing with this sort of extreme, yeah, this extremism uh, made manifest as piety and sort of trying to rehabilitate their way out of it. Um, we're going to see part two of what happens with Rabbi Shimon here. Again, I want to reiterate what I mentioned in response to Jill. Um, I'm going to invite you all to break for Chavruta study. And yeah, it's going to be weird and it's going to be convoluted. Bert, you were telling me you read this a good five times today and it's pretty weird. That's good. That's where we are with it. That's all part of the learning and all part of the journey with this. It's a hard text and that's okay. So I want to invite you all to break into twos and threes, into Chevrutot, um, Chevruta study for this conversation with one another and just read it through. Make a surface level, just reading, see if you sort of get what's going on, and keep track of the questions that come up for you, whatever's strange. And then we're going to read through it all together in greater detail as a group, and we'll answer all of those questions. And break. We're returning from our Chavruta study now, having everybody in their pairs or groups of three had a chance to go over and at least skim it, get a sense of the lay of the land, some of the characters, get a sense of what's going on and have your questions. And so at this point, we're going to come back together as a group and we'll have a closer reading of a lot of this. So whatever questions jumped out at you, um, this is where we'll begin unpacking it all. So I'm going to go ahead and read. Once you have a question, raise your hand. We'll stop. We'll take chunk by chunk here. Yes, Bert. <laughs> that didn't take long. All right. Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair, his son-in-law, heard that he had returned and went out to meet him. He took him to the baths and massaged him. Seeing the cracks in his skin, he wept and the tears streamed from his eyes. I want to give you all a note at this point that I gave to this chavruta over here. Um, it says his son-in-law. The Zohar, the Kabbalistic text, identifies Pinchas ben Yair as his father-in-law. So there are actually different different traditions about what this relationship is. And if it were his son-in-law, that means he, he had, had to have a daughter. If it were his son-in-law, that means he also had a daughter who goes unnamed here, um, which is an interesting and piece, too. probably also weak, not like I'm a feminist. <laughs> <laughs> and who is also of a weak resolve, as yeah, you so kindly resolve. put it in part yeah, one. Yeah. Now, yeah. If, it's, if it's his father-in-law, yeah. then ostensibly the wife that he left probably would have gone back and lived with him. If it was his father-in-law, then his wife, who he left behind, may have gone back to Pinchas ben Yair, so which is an interesting possibility for this, too. That was how Pinchas ben Yair came back. Well, does it mean that is an old man? It is. An old man is giving a bath for him? And does it matter? Someone had to steer him in the right direction. Uh, Who, the two of them? Yeah, right. 
Yeah, they had to come out of their cave and essentially come back to the world. Elijah was the one that notified them, okay, the decree is over, you guys can come out now, it's safe. And they come out, it doesn't go well, they have to go back in and get rehabbed in the cave, and now they're coming back out and actually seeing these other rabbis, people that they know of all wonders. Um, Do we know how old Rabbi Shimon and his son were? At this point Either in time? Before or after? Well, any point? 13 years younger than they are. <laughs> exactly. Sorry. I'm not, does it make any difference? So He met somebody outside from the, the city. I'm, I'm trying to get a care sense of was the, No, but when they went into the cave, was the son 10? We don't know exactly. I, don't know. That's why we don't. I will tell you that Shimon Bar Yochai is a historical figure. Um, this is kind of amazing to think about. We believe that this is an actual man who lived, um, that he was alive in the second century, and we believe that he died in the year 160. So this is a person. Um, how? Not exactly. He, we understand, though, that he was active between about 130 and 160 CE. Um, I always think it's sort of amazing that when we read stories in Torah, the historicity of them is always a challenge. You know, whether this happened, did it happen, what does this mean, what's true, what's factual, whatever. It's sort of mind-blowing to me to think that these are, we believe these were real people, and we're actually going to talk about his resonance and his physical space today in contemporary Israel. We're going to come back to that at the end. That is son-in-law that makes sense, father-in-law doesn't make sense. I would suggest that they give you two very different readings. He was 13 years in the cave. Yes. It's not that he was six months in the cave. Yes. He was 13 years in the cave. Right. So his father-in-law would have been an old man by then. By that standard, at that time, he must have been 85, 90. I can see 90 years old with bathing. And a father-in-law is kind of... Like wouldn't bathe his son-in-law, but a son, you know, like son-in-law might. So again, we have two conflicting readings here. We have the one from our text that calls him the son-in-law. We have a much later piece that identifies him as the father-in-law. Zohar comes about uh, centuries afterwards. So, you know, that could have been their mistake. Or that's a different tradition around it. But again, partly because these were oral texts, we do get different traditions and different pieces around that. So who knows? But we'll hold it as son-in-law if that's what this group wants to do for now. We'll stick with what this text tells us. Yep. So seeing the cracks in his skin, he wept. The tears streamed from his eyes. Woe to me that I should see you in such a state. He replied, you should be happy that you see me like this. If you didn't see me like this, you wouldn't find me in this state of learning, having learned all of this great stuff. So here's Rabbi Shimon, or Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair, saying how sad this is that you're in such poor physical condition. And Rabbi Shimon says, ah, it's a great thing, actually, because look at all of my great learning I have now. What a wonderful thing here. I know so much much now. Originally, when Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai raised a question, Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair would give him 12 answers. Whereas now, when Rabbi Pinchas ben Yair raised a question, Shimon bar Yochai would give him 24 answers. Because he's that much more learned and pious and brilliant from his talking head incident in the cave. Questions about this first paragraph? All right. Yes. That would imply that... That would imply that... Before he went uh, in the cave, um, um, he was not as wise, as learned as as 
as Pinhas Ben. Or perhaps equally as learned. Um, Why would he be asking him questions if uh, he wasn't as learned? Good question. I mean, as an equal, but... So the rabbis are always arguing with each other. The one asking the question is not necessarily the one with less learning. Um, that's sort of baked into their whole process, and they're sort of sparring. Um, sometimes more senior ones interrogate more junior or less learned ones, and sometimes vice versa. Sometimes they are arguing with each other, and we know they didn't even live at the same time as one another. Um, the Talmud as a text lives by this dicta, in mukdam umechar b'torah. There is no such thing as, be, as early or late in Torah. This is a Torah verse that we have in the Talmud. Really lives that into, uh, into its reality. There is an atemporal nature to this. Time is not important to them. They're not doing history in any kind of Western academic sense. Their conversation is the most important thing, not who lived concurrently with whom. So um, not only do they argue with each other which one is more junior, less junior, which one is more learned, sometimes they argue with one another, and we know they didn't live at the same time. So again, it's an invitation to the argument, to the conversation, um, rather than a specific set of historical circumstances, sometimes. This kind of struck me as metaphorical. Okay. In the sense that it was saying that now, you know, before maybe uh, Rabbi Pinchas, you know, had a lot of answers, but now Shimon has twice as many answers and so much more learning. Another good reading. Yeah. Susan, did you have a piece you wanted to... Well, no, I just think it's... I thought it was kind of amusing that... that Instead of being able to get a simple answer, he's, he's, now he has to get 24 answers. Right. So does, has he really learned? Ah. He has not gotten any more streamlined in his thinking or efficient, if you will. Yeah. Um, he adds greater complexity, which... Look, it's sort of what we see. He's not living in the real world. He's not doing this, um, all of this studying to figure out how it is you're supposed to perform mitzvot. He is, he's doing all of this purely as an academic exercise, essentially. He is not in the world of doing mitzvot. He's in this totally theoretical place. So the fact that he responds, you suggest maybe that's not such a positive thing. Maybe he is simply overcomplicating the world. It's a good reading, too. All right, so we're going to continue forward, unless there are any other burning pieces. All right. Since a miracle occurred, he said, let me go and amend for something. For it is written, and Jacob came whole to the city of Shechem. Um, was the carob tree? Sorry? The miracle he's referring to, that was the carob tree? Yes. The yes, the miracle being that they had food and drink inside this cave to sustain them for all of those years they were um, in the cave. Yeah, Jill. If you read the next sentence, yes, when he amends, yes, what he said in the first section, yes, I thought the miracle was that he became more something, smarter or more, okay. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Tolerant. Hang on, so hold that thought for just a second. Let me read to the end of it, and then let's go there. I think that's a great place to take it from there. So he came hold of the city of Shechem, as we get um, this line from Genesis. Rob interpreted this to mean... 
Rav being another one of the rabbis. So here we're seeing essentially this story happening, and then Rav and Shmuel talking about this story, telling this story about Shimon Bar Yochai to one another in the Beit Midrash. So we're seeing not only this story of these rabbis going through all of this stuff with the cave, but we're seeing other rabbis talking about it as a sidebar. Rav interpreted this to mean bodily whole, financially whole, and whole in his learning. At this, Rabbi Shimon was gracious to the city. Rav said he made money for them. Shmuel said he made markets for them. Rabbi Yochanan said he made baths for them. All right, so let's take... Yeah, but Howard said some good stuff. Yeah. What that related to. Go ahead. Oh, well, just it, it just relates back to uh, him having a... As Mr. was saying, a, a kind of a softening from originally in the first paragraph of the fire story, he's, he's uh, over ascetic and, and looks down on everybody who is not as pious, and and now he recognizes that these works are for the benefit of, of, of the wholeness of, of the community and the individuals in it. All right, Jordy, it looks like you disagree here. Yes. <laughs> Very good. I thought that he became whole before he was just a uh, spiritual learned extremist, but now he understands business and he understands uh, his body is healthy again and he also continued his learning. So a couple of, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and then the rabbis Mm -hmm. around it repeat what the rabbi rabbi said initially. Uh, In the olden days that you're doing it for uh, the 1%, and um, so he's a sellout. Are you suggesting like that kind of a? He's a, he's a sellout. Well, all right. That's one interpretation. Yeah. Of what happens? Well, it's it's a repeat of history. So let's consider it for a moment. One take. I like that, Howard. So this could be um, that he has moderated. He has. If he was this pious extremist, this represents that he has come back around and moderated. Or perhaps it's that. He has sold out in all of his, you know, purity of vision and purpose. He has somehow surrendered that, and the rabbis are saying, get a load of this guy. Look at what he's doing now. Either way, though, um, I do think this is an invitation to look at this piece in parallel, in contrast to the beginning of the story, to part one, where they're talking about why the Romans made this stuff. That, oh, these other guys say, oh, this is, this is so great, and he has nothing but contempt for it. Now, he's actually part of this project. It seems like his making amends for this miracle, whether the miracle is his moderation or becoming transforming in some way, or the miracle is the carob tree, that his making amends in this way is taking part in that whole project. That's kind of an interesting shift. What does it have to do with Jacob? So, so it says, this says the text in Genesis This is, again, going back to this piece. They like to have their actions, their ideas, their responses, their arguments. They pin them on text. So they look at this text that says uh, right after, I believe, this is right after the um, (coughs) wrestling with the angel. uh, It says he goes to Shalem. Now, this is not what this text says here. If you look at a JPS translation of that particular line in Genesis, it says he went to a place called Shalem. It's the same word as Shalom. It means whole. However, the rabbis are choosing here not to translate it as whole. They're talking about, or they're not choosing to call it a place name. They're choosing to say it's a statement on Jacob's being at the time. Rather than him going to Shalem, to the city of Shechem, that 
He is, this describes what kind of a person he was. So the rabbis are actually unpacking this Torah line for their own purposes. So they're saying, okay, if he comes whole in the midst of his whole thing, Jacob, this was right after Jacob was wrestling with the angel, gets the name Yisrael, gets injured in the whole fight, he arrives whole somehow. That's interesting that he was just in this horrible, grievous fight. He's still sort of on the run and outside of, uh, not in the good graces necessarily of his family and his brother, but he arrives whole. So the rabbis say, oh, okay, that must mean that he's bodily whole, he's financially whole, he's whole in his learning. He's a whole person um, in this sense. So they're playing a game with their own, with, they're playing fast and loose with the actual Torah text as well. But so they, they're comparing Shimon to Jacob. Yes. And when sure. he went through to the wrestling with the angels. Jacob is comparing himself or sorry, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai seems to be comparing himself to Jacob. He says, since this... Oh. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, that's, that, that was the way I saw it. Yes. That is a lot of chutzpah. I don't get the, the, the whole business about being whole, because if anything, Jacob was not whole at the end of the, of the, exit, uh, the, the wrestling with the angel. And this is what the rabbis do. If they can pin it on a verse... They'll do it, even if they know that they are wildly taking that verse out of its context. Yeah, well, they... That was out of context. Oh, well, no, I... That's right. They're still choosing... Sorry. In the struggle, he had wholeness. Maybe, but he he, he was not exactly whole at the end of the... He He was injured. He is both injured, but at the same time he arrives at this greater wholeness, having this new name and identity being named Yisrael. Um, I'm not going to argue for him being whole or not. I do simply want to note that, yes, the rabbis are taking this and running with it. Um, whether or not you think it's fair to even read the original text like that, that's a fair question. Um, but it is part of their rhetoric. It's part of their ground rules that they play by, much as we might say, what are you guys doing? Um, this is part of their game they play. So, he has done all of these things. <clears throat> Rabbi Shimon, in the midst of all of this, says, he asked, is there a place that needs repair? He was told, in turn, that there is a place of suspicion of corpses, i.e. a former cemetery that they might not be able to identify, and that the Kohanim, the priests, have a hard time going around it. Um, just to sort of explain Kohanim, people who are of this priest caste um, can't come in contact with a cemetery or a dead body or any of these things. They are then rendered impure in that sense. So they imagine there is this suspicious tract of land, and they're not sure what was there, but maybe bodies, and so they have to tiptoe around it. And it's this whole inconvenient thing. Is this saying that not only did he make things, but then he also was repairing things that had fallen apart? That's like what it sounds things. like, yeah. But why did he even ask that? Good question. He seems to have this whole charge after he comes out of the bath, after he comes out of the cave, to say, how do I make amends in this world? What can I do in this world to help make things better? What can I fix? What can I improve? Like, it's a very different attitude than we've seen from him in the rest of this story. Even though he's still full of himself, he still wants to make amends? That's right. He may be the same character, but he... Well, actually, this is a question. Is he still full of himself? Is he a different character? Is he... What's that? Guilt. Guilt. Maybe it's guilt. What is impelling him, I think, is um, is fair game to ask, what is going on? Is he a different character? Is he the same old Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, you know, with a different 
I don't know, set of actions in oh, that way. Yes, we're going to see where this goes on the next page. But at this point, it sounds like he's trying to be Mr. Nice. It sounds like he's trying to make nice right now. It sounds like he's trying. Go ahead, Bert. The paragraph before is about material things. Yes. You make money, you build markets, you build baths, and this is about something spiritual. Right. Maybe he's the founder of Tikkun Olam, the very first Tikkun Olam committee. What a lovely vision for Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, perhaps. Um, so, but we get what's going on here that he's talking about identifying what was a cemetery, right? Okay. An old man replied, Rabbi Yochanan used to cut down lupine. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, he's told... And the Kohanim have trouble, the trouble of going around it. He responded, does anyone know if there was a presumption of purity here? So he says, all right, well, if you're trying to figure out what, what happened here, is there some, some presumption of what's going on? What's the best uh, intelligence you have on this thing? Who's the oldest person who might remember if there was a cemetery? So an old man replied, Rabbi Yochanan used to cut down lupines. So Rabbi Shimon did the same. He examined... The ground. And anywhere it was hard, he declared pure. Anywhere it was soft, he marked as impure. So, he's checking the ground around cutting down these plants, and where the ground was hard, which I guess what they're suggesting here is if the ground was hard, it hadn't been dug up to inter a body there before. Um, he says, okay, it's pure, you can come here. If the ground was soft, indicating that somebody had dug it up before, he said, okay, there's got to be a body here. You can't come here. What Does that... The Kohanim have trouble going around it? Yes. Does that mean to avoid it? Yes, to avoid it. That's absolutely right. That it sends them way out of their way to walk around this suspicious parcel of land. Not to walk through it. Correct. So now he's going through and trying to figure out, okay, where can they actually walk to find a path through? The old man saw this and said, look... Bar Yochai, Ben Yochai, has purified a cemetery. So this guy seems to be making fun of him. He said, look, look at this guy and his miracles that he works. He made a cemetery pure. A cemetery cannot be purified in this sense. So he's saying Shimon Bar Yochai is just full of it, that there's just, this is a joke to him. He's mocking him, essentially. Look, Shimon Ben Yochai, they say Ben Yochai here, it's, often Bar Yochai, but it's the same sort of Ben versus Bar. He's purified a cemetery. Hilarious. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai does not seem to think so. Rabbi Shimon responded, if you hadn't been with us, or even if you had been with us, but didn't vote, you could have said such a thing. But now that you were here and you voted with us, it should be said even prostitutes apply makeup to one another. How much so with, more so with scholars? So he said, you know what? You were part of this conversation. If you hadn't been part of this conversation, if I hadn't asked you how they went about this, you could come and make fun of me. If you had been part of it but hadn't spoken up, then okay, then you could still make fun of me. Then you could act like this. But that I asked you about this. I asked you, the old man, you know, what's the tradition around here? What do people think? And you told me, and then I went out and did the best I could. Now you're going to make fun of me? He said, even prostitutes help apply lipstick to one another. Even prostitutes help each other out. You know, you're going to think you're a scholar here and you're going to cut me down like that? Like, what you're doing is despicable. He's clearly incensed with this. He said, even, you know, these prostitutes that you would judge, 
they at least have some camaraderie. They at least have a sense of helping one another out. What you're doing is beyond for him. Rabbi Shimon cast his gaze upon the man, and the man died. Yep. Then he went out in the street and saw Yehuda ben Gerim. He exclaimed, that man is still alive. Cast his gaze upon him, and zap. Yehuda (laughs) was reduced to a pile of bones. Wow. So, this question that Jill brought up here, I think, is really the operative question in some ways. Who is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? Is he different? Is he changed by this story? Is he still the same guy? Is there some impulse in him that simply can't be redirected? I mean, are we seeing him come out and try and make nice and play nice, but his real nature is still lurking under there? That he looks at things and he causes destruction. That he is fundamentally vengeful. What? Is this murder? One would suggest that. One could certainly suggest that. Um, as my rabbi Steve Sager said about Shimon Bar Yochai, in these texts, vengeance is the mark of a very singular character. This does not seem to lend greater complication to him as a character, this kind of wrath and violence, but there it is. Thoughts and responses on Shimon Bar Yochai. Who is this guy? I think he's full of himself. He's full of himself. I'm sorry, I was looking on my phone. I was trying no, to find the uses of a lupine mm-hmm. to see why on... They have many different things, but there's nothing like... Why is it a, that that was annoying me? Mm-hmm. So I was looking at why they might have cut a lupine and not a chrysanthemum. Well, is it? Well, it, it, well, it, it, it I don't know if it, in, in in our in the current lupine will be, be the flower. Like if you had a grader, they would be the first flower that would grow. Just hmm. that's their nature is to grow in disturbed soil. Oh, it they is. Come up first after fires and. Oh. So they would be the so so if you were walking through an area where there might have been bodies buried and there were spots where there were lupine that would be the that there was a body that If there cool. was lupine there before and it had been dug up, you're but that's when it would <coughs> where it would tend right, to grow. Right, but was oh really? Yeah. Why, why can't Shimon no. just be a man of contradiction? Why does he have to be one way or the other? Absolutely. Why does he have to be a man? Why does he have to be one nature or another? Why can't he be full of contradiction? I think you're right. No, but he starts, uh, he starts to criticize Rome. Yes, he starts criticizing Rome. So he's already thinking of himself a little bit better than uh-huh. Rome. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He goes and he, he prays and he prays and he comes out that uh, he's holy. Nobody can touch him. Right. Then he realized that his holiness is destructive, mm-hmm. so he quiet down a little bit. <laughs> okay? Right. But, still the same guy? But he's still the same guy. <laughs> okay? You can tell me whatever you want. Everything that he does, the city liked him. That was, why did he build all this thing? To make himself big. Yeah. And he continued everything. If he goes to the cemetery, he's going to purify a cemetery. Mm-hmm. And that is impossible, but he thinks he has the power to do it. And when somebody criticizes him and says, what you think you are, mm-hmm. uh, 
Well, one one piece. He's not purifying the cemetery. He can't purify the cemetery. He's simply going to ascertain which ground is cemetery and which is neutral ground. Yes. Yes. To be able to understand to see what's there. So he's not actually purifying it. He seems to be trying to do this nice thing so the Kohanim can walk through. He's trying to be helpful to the community. Or he's trying to be self-aggrandizing. That's a good question, too. I'm going to tell you a couple of other things about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. (laughs) Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is said to be the writer of the Zohar, the creator of Jewish mysticism. All right? We know academically that this is probably not the case. We attribute... Um, the Zohar, the authorship of the Zohar to a rabbi, uh, Moshe de Leon in the 1200s. Um, but that guy said that, oh look, I found this text that Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai wrote. The Zohar is fundamentally mostly a conversation between Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and Eliyahu Anavi. It's a conversation between Elijah and Shimon and them talking to each other and them hanging out with this mystical group of companions called the Chavraya and expounding all of this Kabbalah, pouring out all of this ecstatic and mystical uh, reality and experience. So, no, it probably wasn't him, but it gets tacked onto him in the rabbinic imagination, um, which is an interesting thing. Another interesting thing about him, he is probably the most hostile figure toward people who aren't Jewish in the Gemara. Certainly one of them, if not the most hostile. Um, He did say something terrible. (laughs) I wasn't sure if we were going to get to that, but I suppose we can. Let me see this note that I have. Um, He once famously said, of the best of the heathens, kill him. The best of the snakes, crush its head. And the best of women, watch out for their sorcery. He is a profoundly (laughs) severe... Yes, no one has ever accused him of being a feminist either. But in addition... Yeah, he's a really nasty guy. And that doesn't happen in a vacuum. He was of the generation that came right after the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temples. He has seen... He, having lived essentially to the year 160, was really there for the obliteration of what was ancient Israel, of what was the Israelite relationship with God, what were their holy sites. He has seen all of it be decimated. He's seen it be uh, desecrated. He has seen the destruction of his entire way of life, his relationship with God and his people. And they're essentially these people living in that you know, the second century there, they're the very first ones who are trying to pick up the pieces and say, what do we do with this? How do we even have a relationship with God now that everything's been destroyed? How do we continue being uh, Jewish? They're sort of coming up with what Jewish means. I mean, the priesthood was destroyed entirely. Who are going to be our religious authorities? What kind of political rulers do we have? How do we work together in community? How is community even formed? They're sort of picking up the very beginning, the pieces from that cataclysm. They're the first generation essentially to do that. Um, First, second generation. So there's a piece of me that while I don't applaud or celebrate some of that nastiness of his, I understand where it comes from. That kind of viciousness that he he is living in the wake of um, 
is a pretty profound thing. If we continue forward to the Bar Kokhva revolt that lasted between 132 and 135, he probably saw what we think may have been hundreds of thousands of Jews martyred and executed and burned and saw all of their villages destroyed. We have all of the language we saw about <coughs> Rabbi Akiva and his martyrdom. Here is this wonderful scholar of Torah who was martyred in this vicious, gruesome way. So I don't think that that kind of hatred he speaks of happens in a vacuum, um, particularly as it stands to people who weren't Jewish. The stuff about women is, frankly, I think, a lot harder to justify in his case, but we also do understand that this is a pre-industrial, agrarian, uh, ancient society with gender norms that we would understand or we would see as being probably pretty backward in most cases. So... Um, not to make excuses for him, but to put him in his context. But in particular, with sort of his hatred, um, that comes out of his circumstances, I believe. Not to make, not to justify it, but to say, to understand it in its context. Yeah. Go ahead, George. The context yeah. was magnificent. But I think <laughs> that you can also get it from here just on an interpersonal level. Mm-hmm. I think Howard is right that he moderated when he came out, so he's middle ground. And yet the rabbis still attacked him for what he was attacked before. Mm-hmm. He tries to be a nice guy and you know, help around the cemetery, and they attack him for that. Mm-hmm. So he gets his revenge. I mean, even Just sticking with this, the mm-hmm. other stuff even adds to it. I think in many ways, I think you're right, that uh, we are seeing a character that is extreme, perhaps somewhat more singular. His character is that... <clears throat> Well, I'll put it like this. We see it in... I I think it sort of makes sense that the Zohar gets tacked onto him, that all of this mystical material... He's sort of seen as this paragon of this extreme piety. Um, He is this figure of extremism in some ways, of purity in an ideological, theological, cultural sense. Um, He doesn't do the gray areas or... Uh, the complexity of some of these things particularly effectively. We saw in that first story, um, they talk about those three rabbis. The one says, how beautiful are these things? The second one is silent, we're talking about. And the third one is Rabbi Shimon, who gets expelled. Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Yossi is silent, and he gets off to Sipori. He gets exiled there. I talked a little bit about this last time. We're seeing sort of a binary here of different archetypes and how they handle Rome and that reality. Um, Sipori was this city that was this famous place of commerce, of tolerance, where Jews and Romans basically lived in a degree of peace, and it was much wealthier as a result. It won awards for being a peaceful city from the Roman administration, and they also stationed a garrison there. So it's a very different kind of place. Jerusalem, where we see, we hold as sort of the epicenter of a lot of this, is, it's a place of extremism. It is a much more hard-edged, ideological, religious place. One could suggest that perhaps it hasn't changed that much in some ways (laughs) in its contemporary time. Um, But it represents a certain kind of purity in their imagination, um, which is also interesting to see. So, Rabbi Shimon, what we're seeing here is some of the tension between a certain kind of pious purity around purpose, around identity, and people who are trying to figure out, okay, how do we work with this new reality? How do we work with the Romans? Go ahead. I'm just curious that if, any, if anybody has ever read the, um, Rabbi Shimon, maybe, you know, it's, we're seeing like this as a vengeful, you know, kind of a thing, but maybe he didn't have control over it. Maybe it was something that was 
that he, you know, that it was a higher power that was bigger than him mm-hmm. and was doing the right thing by, you know, you know, looking through a man and, you know, having him turn to bones or whatever. Maybe, maybe it wasn't a nasty thing. Maybe it was something that it was beyond his control. We see... I'm just saying. It's a, it's a, I mean, as long as we're doing all these yeah. readings, I'm just curious if, if anyone's ever... We have seen that happen before. If we rewind all the way back to the oven of Achnai, that snake oven, uh, the patriarch, the sort of political leader of the of this community, gets killed. This is Rabban Gamliel. He gets killed by somehow the anguish and the pain of Rabbi Eliezer, who gets excommunicated. Rabbi Eliezer is at prayer. His wife keeps trying to stop him from praying this one prayer, and she makes a mistake in the timing, and suddenly he prays this prayer in his place of anguish, and Rabban Gamliel is killed. And she goes to him, she said, you've killed my brother. And he says, what? What are you talking about? He doesn't seem to even be aware that his anguish has killed somebody else. Um, It is entirely possible you could read this to say that he isn't doing this intentionally. Um, Perhaps his wrath or his pain, his anguish even around this, has somehow filtered through his gaze to take the lives of these other two. That is a reading you could put forth around this, and it, it takes us to interesting places of wondering... You know, perhaps Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai isn't quite this wrathsome figure, but perhaps he still does represent a certain kind of hard-edged purity um, that doesn't doesn't play well with others. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Bert. We, we've looked at, at all different kinds of meanings of taking this one way and taking this another way. Mm-hmm. Is there any accepted interpretation of this, or... Is it just like everything we've done here? There are a lot of... X or Y or Z. I mean, is there... It's interesting, actually, in some ways... So what, how do we, what is the understanding of this? What does this mean? In some ways, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is sort of a Rorschach test for looking at Jewish communities. In what ways do they venerate him? Do they have anxiety and do they have tension around him? How do we look at Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai? Um, with what complexity or discomfort or happiness... Do we look at him and his legacy? So in some ways, he's a very interesting figure to hold up to different Jewish communities. And this is sort of where I want to end um, with Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai today. You can go visit the grave of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. It is right outside of Tzfat at Mount Meron, this whole mountain there. And it is this shrine that is constantly packed with all kinds of folks generally who are very, very religious, worshipping at his actual grave. Um, I have heard people speak with discomfort about it, because what does it look like to be bowing down and praying, it seems like, at this stone, at this for this guy, because he's not a messiah. I mean, what does that mean? And the answer that comes back is, well, we're praying. I've asked people there who are praying at the grave of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, and the response that comes back is, well, we're praying on his merits, that he was such a pious and wonderful guy that we are praying, based on how great he was, that God will hear us. It's a really, really interesting thing to see, and it, yeah, I would suggest that it's a little bit uncomfortable, that it's a pretty striking vision. If we're looking to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai as a certain kind of representing and reflecting a certain kind of unyielding piety and perhaps an impulse that's a little bit dangerous. It's a fantasy of having this perfect, pious reality, but it takes you out of 
the reality that we live in. Um, there's something seductive about that, and in some ways, uh, watching the way in which people interact with his legacy in our world today uh, is a really remarkable thing, and I think gives us certainly a vision of real complexity in Jewish peoplehood. It shows us the way in which different communities hold very different identities in terms of these things. Um, we are a progressive, reconstructionist Jewish community. I think that there is something about that pious impulse that is a little bit dangerous. I get how it's seductive, this sort of all-encompassing, I will just surrender myself to the total purity of it. I think that there's something a little bit dangerous when you move to take yourself out of the living, breathing world, this world of mitzvot, this world um, with all of its rough edges and having to plow our fields and have our day jobs. There's something really dangerous about that. To me, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai may be this brilliant scholar, and he may be very pious, but he also presents a cautionary tale of sorts. Um, a... He proves to us and says to us that, yes, it's wonderful to be learned, to have this learning, and we can hold that as a virtue, and, yeah, you can take that too, mo- too far. Too much of anything can be bad. Um, so in some ways, he is this figure, depending on where you sit, maybe he's the most pious, the most wonderful, and he deserves to be the uh, progenitor of of Kabbalah, of mysticism, because he doesn't actually live on this plane. He exists up in this other plane with Elijah, Eliyahu Hanavi, and these fiery chariots up in the Heichalot, up in the palaces of all of that Kabbalistic literature. Or maybe it's a cautionary piece saying that, okay, it's all well and good to be in those realms, but you also have to live here too. So it's an interesting way that Shimon Bar Yochai takes us through a number of different planes of Jewish spiritual reality, a number of different ways of living in relationship to God, to that which is holy, and the sort of compromises in the way in which the world is a complex place. And uh, and it in some ways is both a celebration of this pious figure, but also a cautionary tale of going too far down the rabbit hole. So I'm glad to have you all join me tonight for Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and look at him and his story and his arc and the planes upon which he exists and interacts with us both in the time of the rabbis all the way up through today. So with that, thank you all for coming and have a great evening. Thank you.